As I said earlier, this is the last week in the season of Epiphany. Next week, this next Wednesday, we enter the season of Lent. And I believe the story for today that we just heard read is a magnificent bridge between these two great seasons. From the revelation of the divine glory that Jesus experienced to the grind of his suffering and death. But we're still on this side. We're in epiphany. Now, what does that word mean to you? I don't know. Epiphany. It's a word we use from time to time. The original language is translated revelation or appearing or manifestation. All of those words could work. It's a time when we become aware of something that we weren't previously aware of. As though a great light was suddenly turned on and what had laid in the shadows is revealed fully to us. Something we didn't recognize is apparent. It's what we call an aha moment. Have you ever had one of those? Aha. I think most of us had. Some people say, you know, this week I had a real epiphany. And we know what they mean when they say that, don't we? Something dawned on me that I wasn't consciously aware of before. And so in this season following Christmas that we've been in, uh, throughout the lection readings on the Gospels, we deal with the events in Jesus' life when his true identity, his true character and nature was revealed, something that hadn't been apparent before, something most people didn't recognize in him. We think of the Magi, those strange foreigners traveling long distance, following a new star, a star that suddenly appeared, hadn't been there, coming to worship the newborn king of the Jews, something most of the Jews didn't recognize. It was an epiphany for them. We think of Jesus on the eighth day of his life being dedicated in the temple. That aged, faithful saint, Simeon, who waited in the temple night and day for the appearing of his Savior, his salvation. And he takes that little baby, not unlike he held other babies, but he says, I can die in peace. My eyes have seen my salvation. Wow. The glory of his people Israel. An epiphany. An epiphany. Peter's confession of Jesus just before this event of the transfiguration. When Jesus said, hey, who do folks say I am? And uh, the disciples say, well, some say you're Elijah. Some say you're one of the prophets. And Jesus says, ah, who do you say I am? And it's Peter who says, oh, you, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus says, aha, you're right, Peter. Your flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but God revealed it to you. An epiphany, an awareness of something previously hidden. And now today, 
we come upon the final and strangest and most glorious epiphany story, the transfiguration of Jesus. Now, he's worn out from his frenetic ministry, day and night. People are always there wanting him to attend to their needs. And so he takes his inside little group of disciples, Peter, James, and John, and they climb this mountain. To, he goes to pray. And we read, and we heard read by Gloria a minute ago, as he was praying, the appearance of his face was transformed, radically changed, and his clothes became dazzling white. And there were two men who appeared with him, Moses and Elijah, talking with him. And it says they were glorious to see. Now, before we consider the impact of all of this on the disciples, let's consider what it might have meant for Jesus. I mean, why such a luminous display? What was his purpose? Remember, just previous to this, he had predicted his fate, that he must go to Jerusalem, that he must suffer many terrible things, and that he will be put to death. And even though Jesus was one with God, he was fully human, like all of us. And in his full and utter humanity, I think he needed something at that moment to strengthen him. He needed a reaffirmation. He needed a reassurance of who he truly was and what he was to be about. Just like at his baptism when his ministry began, and he heard the voice of God saying, this is my beloved. Jesus went there to be reaffirmed as God's son about God's mission in the world. He gets and receives a glimpse into his inherent glory, the glory that he laid aside in his ministry on earth and that he would recover beyond the suffering of the cross. And the disciples, what about them? Well, Peter is the spokesperson, and as he does, he's always somewhat spontaneous and exuberant, and he says right away, he says, hey, what a rush to be here, Lord. This is a great place to bring us to. Let's, let's get a little property up here. Uh, let's put a few buildings up. I mean, we've arrived, right? We're here. This is permanent. Let's extend this experience. Let's wait for the consummation of all things, which God will bring about now. This whole event, friends, is rich with end-time imagery. I mean, Moses and Elijah, the great lawgiver, the great prophet of Israel, who many expected to return at the end of the age. They're there. When God initiated the new age, they believed that he would come in glorious light. God would come in glorious light. And putting up shelters, putting up booths, what's that about? Well, that harkens back to Israel in the exile, or in the exodus, when they would put up booths, live in tents, as they journeyed with God through the wilderness places. And God tabernacled with God's people there. And the Jews celebrated that feast continually. And so Peter's saying, let's put up booths, permanent booths, because at the end of the age, God will come permanently to tabernacle amongst the people. Peter expected this was it. This was the end. This was ground zero. And who would want to leave that kind of mountaintop experience? 
Who would? None of us, I think. Have you ever had a transfiguration moment in your life? I wonder. A moment when you seemed bathed in the glow of a glorious presence with God and that all was right with the world. A divine taste of something beyond the reality of this earthly experience. Have you ever had those moments? If we're honest, I think, friends, we all long for such an experience. Um, And God, in God's grace, sometimes grants them to us. I had a transfiguration experience about 30 years ago. I wish I could say it was yesterday, but it wasn't. It was a long time ago. But it stays with me. It stays with me forever in my heart. It happened after about 10 years of very painful ministry, a struggle in the church I served. And after 10 years of that, I said, you know, I'm not wearing the T-shirt. Are we having fun yet? I wanted to quit. In fact, I, I felt like Elijah. You remember after his victory over the prophets of Baal? And then he finds out he hasn't brought down Queen Jezebel and Ahab. They're after him more than ever to kill him. And he hightails it for his life. He runs as far and as fast as he can. He's really running away from God. Try to get away. We find him coming to the end in a cave, and he says, that's enough. I quit. I'm done. I felt like Elijah in my own life, deeply discouraged. But I didn't hide in a cave. I went to a Christian leadership conference in California. I thought to myself, well, it's January. It's a nice place to come. If you're going to run away. I could hide because nobody knew me. It was safe, I thought. Ha, but it wasn't. In fact, it was a very dangerous place for me to wind up. I listened at that conference to story after story of Christian leaders who just bore their souls and talked about their moments of being beaten and bruised and broken down and alone. And they all came to a point of wanting to give it up. Wow. But then that's where God appeared in their lives in a new way. And there was a new calling upon them. Well, you know, the last morning of that conference, we had communion, as we will here. And we went forward and we knelt on the steps. And elders served us. And I knelt and I prayed and I thought to myself and I said to God, you know, God, if you, you could do something with these people. Surely you could do something with me. Huh. And then this beautiful woman, Viba, came. She was an elder of the church. She brought me the elements. She served me. And after she served me and blessed me, I felt bathed from head to toe, <laughs> overwhelmed with a sense of God's presence and love, and that I was God's beloved child. But that wasn't the end of it. As I sat there, or as I knelt there and experienced that, a few minutes later, Viba returned. I was now alone at the front. She returned. I think she sensed in the spirit something deep was happening for me. And she asked if she could anoint me 
and pray for me. And what could she pray for? Well, I hadn't been feeling well. (laughs) I had a bad cold. I was losing my voice. I felt lousy. I said, well, maybe you could pray for my health, for healing, for wellness. And she paused in silence. She anointed my forehead, the mark of the cross, with oil. And she prayed, and I'll never forget the prayer. She prayed for my healing, yes, especially my voice. But then she said this, if there's anything you want Michael to say, give him voice to say it. Wow, I thought of that in the days that followed. And during those days afterwards, God, I felt, began to speak to me about what I needed to do when I returned home, when I left the mountaintop of that experience, what I needed to say, how I could lead and guide a congregation that was struggling. And I came a sense of new commissioning, a new sense of mission for my life and that of the congregation, a new sense that Our church needed to be reborn to be what it was when it was founded, a mission. A mission to those beyond and their needs. And I felt strengthened to return. As deeply as I longed to stay in the mountaintop of that moment, I knew it was not the destination. Now many times I wished that Viva hadn't prayed that prayer because I knew that I was being called to lead the church somewhere it wasn't and maybe wasn't prepared to move to. And I was uneasy. And I wasn't sure I wanted that voice because it meant change and that meant conflict. It meant new direction and that meant disruption. And that was true. And it, was, it happened and it was painful. But at the end, there was a breaking through to a new understanding of who we were and what we were to do that's still going on today. Now, Jesus, too, knew he couldn't stay on the mountaintop. And as we heard read, it said, the next day after they had come down from the mountain, a large crowd met Jesus. Nothing new there. That's what he'd left. They're waiting for him. A large crowd with needs. And as he had ascended to experience the glory of the transfiguration, he descended to carry and seek that glory and the grind of the needs before him. Sisters and brothers, I believe as he did that God's glory shines through the ordinary, everyday people and places in our lives along our way. If we can cultivate a reverence to pay attention to it as Jesus did to the cry of a father to heal his son. But it doesn't have to be as spectacular as that. It's our ability to see the luminous, the glorious, the holy, the sacred in the world around us, in the mess and mundane of our lives and the lives of those around us. Because I believe God's glory is always placed there. Every day, in every place, with every person. I believe that. One of my favorite books is by Barbara Brown Taylor. 
It's called An Altar in the World. I hope you've read it or will read it. An Altar in the World. And in the book, she says, the world is full of altars. And God has placed them. Sacred spots placed by God. And if we were aware of those places, it would be like we would always be banging our shins as we walked through the world on them. I quote, The last place most people look is right under their feet in the everyday activities, accidents, and encounters of their lives. The reason so many of us cannot see the red X that marks the spot is because we're standing on it. (laughs) Standing on it. It's right here, right now, in your lives, in the faces of those seated around you. And all you will encounter after this worship. And our prayer and our longing should be to, God, show me your glory. Show me your glory here in the ordinary, everyday moments of my life, in the people that I am led to encounter your glory. I love the music of Bruce Coburn. He's one of my favorites. He's a poet. He's an activist. He's a composer. He's a singer. I started listening to him when I started university. He wrote an autobiography I read a few years ago. It's very long, very thick. It's a wonderful book, painful book. And he called the book, his autobiography, he named it after one of his songs, Rumors of Glory. Rumors of Glory. And that song, one of the stanzas says this, Smiles mixed with curses, the crowd disperses, about whom no details are known, each one alone, yet not alone, behind the pain, the fear, etched on the faces, something is shining like gold, (laughs) but better, rumors of glory, rumors of glory that can become reality for people, waiting to be recognized and affirmed in every human encounter helping people find their own new exodus to liberation, to healing, and reaffirming is our call to seek that glory in them and to help them release that. I close with this story. It's well known. It's a story by Fred Craddock, a very well-known American preacher and professor of homiletics, now deceased, It's a great story. He and his wife were on vacation one year. They stopped for dinner at a local restaurant. It was a new restaurant. It just opened in a small town. And during the meal as they ate, they saw an elderly man in the restaurant moving about from table to table, (laughs) greeting and talking to everybody. Broad smile. People responded. And he thought to himself, oh God, don't let him come to our table. We're on vacation. But he did. He said, good evening. And they replied, good evening. He said, are you folks on vacation? And he thought to himself, Craddock, none of your business. He said, yes, we're on vacation. He says, where are you from? 
They said, Oklahoma. Oklahoma? Wow, what do you do there? He thought, leave us alone. We don't know who you are. He said, I'm a minister. And this gentleman paused a moment. He said, a minister? I owe a great deal to a minister. And he pulled up a chair and sat down. And Craddock said, yes, why don't you have a seat? And he tried to sound sincere, but he wasn't. Who is this guy, he thought. (laughs) The man said, I grew up in these parts, he said. He said, my mother was unmarried, and the whole community knew it. I was an illegitimate child. Some called me worse than that. It was a shameful thing in those days, and I was ashamed. And the condemnation that fell on her fell on me. When we went to town, people were always staring, pointing, making fun, wondering who my father was. But I didn't know. At school, ugly things occurred to me. So I stayed to myself during recess, and I ate my lunch alone. In my early teens, I began to attend a little church near us. The minister was well-known, he was attractive, and he was frightening. He had a chiseled face, a heavy beard, and a deep voice. But I loved to go and hear him preach. I don't know why, it, it did something for me. But I was afraid I was not welcome since I was as they put it, a bastard. I would go later, just in time for the sermon. And then, just after the sermon, I would move out and leave. So no one could stop me. I was afraid. They'd say, what's a boy like you doing here? But one Sunday, as I was leaving, people filled the aisle before I could get out, and I was stuck. And before I could exit, I felt this heavy hand on my shoulder from behind, turning me slowly around. And there I looked, and there was the minister. I raised my eyes. I shook. I trembled in fear. He seemed to stare at me for quite a while. I knew what he was doing. He was trying to guess who my father was. Boy, he said finally, whose child are you? Who's your father? I knew it was coming. My feelings would be crushed. I could never go back there again. Finally, he said, oh, yes. Oh, yes. I know who your father is. I gulped, he said, not knowing myself who he was, about to find out the shameful secret. I, I know, he said, you bear a strong family resemblance. You, boy our child of God. Now, patted him on the back, go and claim your inheritance. He said, I left that building a different person. In fact, it was really the beginning of my life. Craddock says, I was so moved, I had to ask, what's your name? And he said, Ben Hooper. Ben Hooper, Craddock thought to himself. And he had a vague recollection that when he was a boy, he heard stories his father told of a man named Ben Hooper. 
twice elected as governor of Tennessee, a former illegitimate child, governor of a state. Each of us, friends, are bearers of that glory as children of God. God names us beloved sons and daughters. We come in a moment now to communion. What is this? Well, it's a common meal. There's nothing here on the table that's unusual. It's every day, very ordinary. Bread, grape juice. We're all familiar with that. A meal. A meal. But hidden within is glory. The glory of God. When Jesus shared his last meal with his followers, he transformed, he transfigured their common Passover meal into another sort of meal, revealing to them something hidden but unknown, pointing to his eternal sacrifice he would make for us to demonstrate the glory of the love of God available to all. The glory of God's unconditional love revealed through the cross, gracing our lives now and forevermore. And so I invite you, as we invite the children to come, we're going to partake at stations.